We'll hear argument first this morning in number 90-5538, Zachar Malconian versus Louis W. Sullivan. Uh, Mr. Wolfman. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This Court is called upon in this case to construe the following language in the Equal Access to Justice Act, a law which provides for attorney's fees against the federal government. And that language is, a party seeking an award of fees and other expenses shall, within 30 days of final judgment in the action, submit to the court an application for fees and other expenses, which shows that the party is the prevailing party. The question here is whether, as we maintained, and as was universally the law prior to the decision below, that this limitations period may only be triggered by a court judgment, or whether, as the respondent, Secretary of Health and Human Services, contends, this statute can be triggered by an administrative decision of an administrative agency. This case began in 1982, when Petitioner applied for Social Security Disability Benefits under the SSI program. He appealed adverse administrative decisions through the administrative process, and the case proceeded to the Federal District Court. After a period of time, the case was remanded before any proceedings on the merits or any decisions on the merits by the district judge. The case was remanded for the taking of new evidence before the administrative agency. This decision did not trigger the statute of limitations because at that point there was no prevailing party in the litigation. The case was simply remanded for the taking of new evidence. A few months later, in May of 1985, the Appeals Council of the Social Security Administration found this petitioner disabled. And later in that year, approximately four months later, benefits were actually paid to this petitioner. In May of 1986, approximately five months, excuse me, eight months after that, the petitioner filed an application for attorney fees under the Equal Access to Justice Act. That was considered by the district court, and the district court denied attorney fees on the ground that the government's position had been substantially justified. At no time did the district court or the secretary indicate in any way that the petition, the application for fees, was untimely. Petitioner appealed to the Ninth Circuit, and again, the secretary did not argue that the petition, the application, was untimely. In fact, the case was fully briefed, and uh, after that full briefing, but before argument, the Ninth Circuit, sua sponte, raised the issue of the timeliness of the fee application, although the sua sponte order indicated that the uh, first judgment of the district court remanding the case might have triggered the statute. Later, however, when the secretary did take a position in response to the to the sua sponte order, the issue became whether the administrative decision could trigger the limitations period. Later, the Ninth Circuit did indeed hold that the administrative decision could trigger the limitations period and that the decision of the administrative agency would become final within 30 days of that decision, thus triggering the, uh, that a fee application would have to be filed within 30 days of that administrative decision. The secretary originally in his opposition agreed with that position, but uh, on the merits, uh, the brief on the merits in this court has adjusted his position somewhat and says that the decision of the administrative agency becomes final 65 days after it is issued, and then uh, the 30-day period is thus triggered after that. In explaining why the Ninth Circuit's decision ought to be reversed, we want to focus here on three things, the statutory language, the legislative history, and some practical considerations which we think merit reversal. 
Turning first to the statutory language, the term judgment is quite clearly a reference to the decision of a federal court. That is indeed the language used by Congress. Decisions of administrative agencies simply are never called judgments. The secretary, indeed, the secretary himself does not call any of his decisions judgments, but rather decisions, determinations, denials of review, and and such like that. In administrative law generally, administrative agencies make awards, issue orders, make decisions, rulings, but they do not render judgments. Mr. Wolfman, I I think I agree with you that that normally that's, uh, that's the way we would interpret words like that, but we've already interpreted other words in D1A in, in a way that's a little unusual. That is to say, we have held that although you're entitled, it only says you're entitled to fees, uh, fees and other expenses incurred by that party in any civil action. Now, I would normally think that civil action meant only a, a suit before a law court as well and not a, an action before an agency. But we've interpreted that to entitle you to a fee before the agency. It seems to me that if we give that phrase a little bit of an unusual meaning, in order to make sense out of the whole provision, we're going to have to give the phrase judgment a little bit of an unusual meaning, too. Well, you're referring, of course, to the Sullivan versus Hudson case. That's right. In that case, the, the court said that if there is existing a pending civil action, that administrative decisions on remand can be considered part of that civil action if they have a very intimate relationship with, with the remand. Uh, the court, of course, did not hold that uh, administrative uh, proceedings in the first instance are compensable under the EJA, uh, unless, of course, they're adversary proceedings under a different provision of the EJA section. But they do consider them part of the civil action. Yes. Those particular type of narrow, narrow exception for a particular type of proceedings which are intimately related to the civil action. But that's what gets us into the situation we're in. And, and, and if you're going to interpret civil action broadly that way to include everything, it seems to me you ought to interpret judgment broadly to, in, to include anything at, at, at either level. Well, I, I would submit, Justice Scalia, that there are two entirely different phrases. And I don't, when we get to the practical considerations, which I would be glad to address, there's no reason to expand that. I think in the, in the Sullivan versus Hudson case, the court was expanding upon uh, earlier decisions in the attorney fee area um, that, that said administrative proceedings that are necessary for the vindication of rights that are asserted in that civil action must be compensated or you would really make illusory the uh, purpose behind the fee statute. I don't think we have that uh, with the definition of judgment. Mr. Wolfman, uh if you read further on in the language you're construing, where it says a judgment is final and not appealable, uh, it, it's, it, I get the sense Congress was not using terms of art here. What does the per- phrase not appealable mean by about a judgment? Well, in this particular case, that was a response in the 1985 amendments uh, to the law, which uh, after a district cu- court, for instance, uh, issued a judgment, uh, Congress felt it was best not to uh, force the uh, applicant to file a fee petition while the government could still appeal to the Court of Appeals uh, for the purposes of uh, efficiency to have everything completed in the district court and then allow the period to run. And that is what the, the phrase means. It, it, it is not a reference whatsoever to the decision-making of administrative tribunals. Well, so Congress meant by saying not appealable that the time for appeal must have run? That is correct. In the American administrative law, generally, as I was saying, the, the 
judgments are not normally issued, never are issued in, in our procedures. Indeed, the APA, the Administrative Procedure Act, sets definitions for scores of agency proceedings before scores of agency and uses various terminologies such as order, disposition, and so on, but never the term judgment. But even conceding that an agency could call its decision a judgment, the question here is what Congress believed when it enacted the EJIA, and it surely drafted that terminology with the ordinary usage in mind. Indeed, four different points in the provisions that are before the Court today, the term judgment uh, is used, and each time it appears to be a reference to the decision of a court. In fact, twice there are cross-references to other statutes which talk about uh, collecting on that judgment, uh, the, the clerk tax, the clerk of the court taxing court costs, and so on. There is no indication whatsoever, or however, that we're, there's a reference to the decision of an administrative agency. Mr. Wolfman, in circumstances such as we have in this case, where uh, your client obtained the relief sought, and where the government is precluded from filing any appeal, who is it that's going to go back to the district court and get a judgment, do you suppose? It could be either party as a matter of practice, and still as a matter of the Secretary's practice. And the Secretary still tells every claimant nationwide that he will go back and file certain papers, but that he also will get some type of final disposition in the action. So ordinarily, and in my experience practicing in this area, has been the secretary. But surely, what kind, what kind of a judgment does the court enter? Well, it, it, what does it say? Uh, frequently, excuse me, I'm sorry. Well, what does it say? Frequently, it will simply dismiss the action or affirm the final decision of the appeals council. But of course, if there are further proceedings to be taken, that if the party is not fully satisfied, there could be further proceedings. Oh, sure. Merits. Here, the, here, the uh, your your uh, client won before the secretary. That is correct. He fully. And there was won. nothing else going on in the administrative agency. Well, that is true, but that is a determination that we make in hindsight. Yes, yes, yes. And and. But uh, so, uh, <clears throat> you say the, the the secretary's practice is to go up after that to the court, and and have a judgment entered. That is indeed the secretary's practice, by and large. It did not happen in this case, but. My experience, and in the forms attached to our brief, it is clearly the Secretary's intention to do that in every case. The, sec the Secretary says in his uh, responding brief that uh, he doesn't intend to follow that practice in every case if he prevails here. Uh, a concession that he still follows that practice and sends forms to every claimant and every claimant's representative that he will do so uh, now. Now, the EJA itself draws the distinction I'm suggesting uh, between agency decision-making and court judicial decision-making, the same distinction that we urge. In Section 504 of the EJA, the part which pertains to work done only at the administrative level in adversary proceedings without the requirement of a court action, the fee petition must be filed within 30 days of final disposition in the action, where in the provision at issue here for work associated with court proceedings, the fee application must be filed within 30 days of the final judgment, as we had said. Indeed, taking it a step further, Section 504 says, and I'm quoting now, the party shall, within 30 days of final disposition in the adversary adjudication, submit to the agency, to the agency, the fee application, while under Section 2412D, the provision at issue in this case, 
the party shall, within 30 days of the final judgment in the action, and I'm quoting, submit to the court the fee application. Now, this juxtaposition of the words strongly suggests it is the court whose judgment triggers the limitations period. But turning to the legislative history, if, if the statute left any doubt as to the validity of our position, the 1985 legislative history of the EJA dispels it. The legislative history refers numerous times to this limitation period, and it is the judgment of the court that is being referred to, and this in response to Justice Rehnquist's question, for instance, as to what is a final judgment that is not appealable. There's discussion of waiting for the period from the district court's judgment to expire before it comes final, waiting for the appellate court's uh, decision to become final, in other words, in, when the period for filing for certiorari expires, and even a reference to the decision of this court, waiting for the time for when filing a petition for rehearing uh, expires. But never is there a discussion in the legislative history that that could be the Did you have filed uh, a petition for fees uh, when the court entered, uh, within 30 days after the court entered its remand? Um, no, Your Honor. Uh, if a, such a petition had been filed, fees would have been denied because the party seeking fees had not yet prevailed. That is, uh, this, in fact, what this Court said in Sullivan versus Hudson and follows standard attorney fee law. You mean it hadn't finally prevailed, but, it, it, but the, you had prevailed in the Court. That's correct. There was, a, well, there was a, certainly a final judgment then. Well, what there was was a remand. At, in well, fact, still a final judgment. There was a judgment, and it was at the behest of the Secretary, and it was remanded. Um, but the party had not yet prevailed. And in fact, what this Court has said is fees cannot be obtained on what may ultimately be a pyrrhic legal victory. What you need is to actually get what you want. And the material relationship between the parties had not been altered. And uh, the Secretary does not contest that point with us. Um, most importantly, as to legislative history, the committee report uh, actually addressed the very issue before the Court today. It, it proved the existing case law and stated that in this context, in the Social Security context, the administrative decision after remand is not a final judgment for statute of limitations purposes, and only a post-remand decision of some sort could provide that trigger. And, and finally, the, the thrust of the 1985 amendments, both in the amendments and its legislative history, more generally was to eliminate technical barriers to fees and that might become traps for the unwary, and that that should not be the basis for denying a fee application. As we stated in this case, it had been universally the law. Uh, our position had universally been the law, and the Secretary is still following that position by sending these forms to the claimants. That would really thwart the purposes of Congress in 1985. And, and the final thing I would like to turn to is some of the practical considerations. The Secretary argues that our view would place a great administrative burden on the Court. That is simply not the case. We are not requiring the Secretary to file an enormous number of post-remand pleadings with the Court. If there is a reason to do so for merits litigation, then that needs to be done. But for this purpose, to trigger the statute, all that is necessary is some type of post-remand final adjudication that discontinues this piece of litigation. We are talking about a one-page form order that can be gotten by the Secretary if the Secretary desires to run the statute of limitations. What if, what if the Secretary doesn't get it? Does that then mean that your client is not in a position to, argue, uh, to request attorney's fees? Absolutely not, I think, and there's two reasons for that. 
First of all, if, if, if a judgment, post-remand judgment was necessary, then clearly the, a petitioner, a claimant, an applicant could get such an order. Yes, but if, if, the, if the secretary doesn't get it, then your client would have to get it in order to uh, be able to move for attorney's fees? No, Chief Justice Rehnquist. The, the statute says that in order to trigger the limitations period, that the 30 days runs from the final judgment. The, the statute has no requirement whatsoever that the limitations period necessarily run. If, they, if the Secretary wants to pr- provide a time bar and put the onus on the claimant, he can do so. This, not only does the statute not indicate that, but the legislative history makes quite clear that applications that are filed, and let me give you an example. For instance, the district court issues a memorandum order and opinion, granting summary, in effect, granting summary judgment, but the court does not till much later, which is sometimes the case, file a judgment under Rule 58 of the Rules of Civil Procedure. Well, the statute says a party seeking an award of fees and other expenses shall within 30 days of final judgment. Now, are you saying that uh, you don't have to have a final judgment in, in order to f- file an application for attorney's fees? That, that is correct. You have to have prevailed and obtained the benefits you want, but there does not need to be that piece of ba- paper finally uh, uh, dismissing the case in order to the statute of limitations need not run the legislative history also addresses this point rejects a previous case of the ninth circuit called Auk bay saying that that would be an overly technical construction to simply require it now we're not suggesting that that uh, it may not be a good idea for either party or for the, particularly for the secretary to get such an order and as i said on the merits this is what the secretary what 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 does the language within 30 days of final judgment in the action mean that means that after the final judgment of the district court in the case, that the applicant has 30 days in which to file a fee petition. If that judgment is never sought or obtained, the, if the petitioner has prevailed, he can get fees. And the legislative history, as I said, explicitly addresses that scenario. Well, but the statute seems to address it in a different way, at least seems to me. If, if it says, you shall within 30 days of final judgment in the action file an application for fees, I would think that would presuppose that there is a final judgment. We respectfully disagree, uh, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, that the, how, how do you read that language? A party seeking an award of fees shall, within 30 days of final judgment, submit to the court an application. That, that language, uh, Your Honor, sets the, the outmost time in which someone could file a fee application if there exists a final judgment. Uh, as... Uh, Judge Posner said in the uh, McDonald case, that deadline, uh, that is not a starting point. It's a deadline. It's not a requirement, but it is a deadline if it does exist. Now, we are not suggesting that... Well, you you could, uh, on your your theory, you could wait wait a couple of years uh, after you prevail. I don't suppose you would because you want your money. But uh, uh, you could uh, wait a year and... uh, and, and never have a final judgment, and, and any time you wanted to, you could just file for fees. Well, uh, is that, is that, that's your position, I take it? Well, our position is that, but um, that well, occurs um, only if suppose, the Secretary allows it I would suppose the requirement for, for being relatively prompt at filing fees indicates that uh, there should, in all cases, be some sort of a deadline. Well, and that, I think, is precisely why the Secretary is telling every claimant around the nation that he will make post-remand filings and get an order. But as you suggest, I think there's, there are two answers to that as a practical matter. One of those answers is that the uh, attorney will generally file quickly because he wants to see some cash. Uh, the, the other answer is that this will happen only if the Secretary allows it to occur. It will not otherwise happen. And so, Wolf, Wolfman, you, you, you talk as though 
the position you're arguing applies only in Social Security cases. And you say it's the practice of the Secretary to file these things automatically. But the Equal Access to Justice Act doesn't just apply to the Social Security Act. So it would, it would have to be every agency of the government which, upon remand from a court, when the, when the agency action has been reversed, every agency of the government would then have to come back to that district court, I take it, in order to cut off, uh, you know, uh, years later uh, uh, seeking a fee, uh, fees under the EAJA. Isn't that right? That is right, but I think there, there, are, there is an answer to that. First of all, I think frequently in the administrative, not always, but sometimes in the administrative context, that first order may in fact be an order in which the person prevailed, in which they actually got some or all of what they wanted. In other contexts, very frequently, the court remanding does retain jurisdiction, and it is indeed expected, like it was in this context, that they will come back to the court. The equivalent in the Social Security context of a 405G sentence 6 remand. Uh, that is correct. correct. Although it Which may do you consider this? Is this a sentence, yes, sentence six or sec- sentence four? This is a sentence six. It was a remand for the taking of new evidence before there was any decision on the merits by the court. Well, you should have been making a different argument then, because under a set- sentence six remand, you have to come back to the court. I absolutely agree, Your Honor. Our point, however, is that we believe that the secretary is absolutely required in a sentence six case to come back on the merits of the case. Or some type of post No problem there. Then, then the final judgment is the judgment of the court when you come back. The, the only problem, I guess, is when it's a sentence for remand under the Social Security Act and, and God knows what under all the other statutes with, to which the EAJA applies, right? That is correct. And it, perhaps if I argue is that that is not a major problem. It requires a, a form order if there is truly nothing further to happen on the merits, which is only a post-hoc determination. We don't know that when the administrative decision first comes down. But, uh, but it, we are not saying that uh, the Secretary needs to file, uh, make post-remand filings in each case for EJIA purposes. We completely concur with your suggestion that is absolutely required in six cases on the merits. And do I understand you to say this is, in your view, a sentence six remand case? Yes, Justice O'Connor, it is. Mm-hmm. And the, the reason it is is because the substance of what occurred in the district court is that the secretary, having uh, seen evidence, additional evidence that was not previously available at the first administrative hearing, asked the court to remand the case to consider that new evidence. That is a particular provision uh, that makes for a sentence six remand. Under your theory of the statute that uh, the 30-day final judgment rule is simply an outside limit, uh, would a prevailing party be entitled to make multiple applications for fees? At what point, Your Honor? I'm not sure. I- well, um, I, I thought you told that the, your answer to the Chief Justice was that the 30 days was just an outer limit and that you could make application for fees at any time before that. Well, that and, and if you're prevailing as to part of the action, can you then uh, uh, apply for fees uh, as to that part and then come back and apply for more fees when the final determination is made by the agency? Indeed, I think that's, that is a possibility. And the, the legislative history makes clear that interim fees if you will, are permitted under this statute. And sometimes that is necessary in litigation in which you've prevailed on a substantial amount of what has occurred, but you haven't completed all your work. There's some post-judgment work to be done, and uh, case law generally permits that. But that's one of the nice things about our approach, because in this case, 
where it usually is pretty much over if the remand decision uh, is favorable, and we can tell that by the time it gets back to the district court. Then that decision, uh, if the Secretary desires to get that judgment, as he says he will do in every case, um, then that will pretty much be the time where the entire petition with all the work can be presented to the district court. So I think that's one of the nice things about about the position we take, not only that it comports with the statute that Congress has drafted. Indeed, just to finish up on some of the practical considerations, we have explained... Excuse me, was the Secretary's motion in this case to to send it back, was that made before the answer? It was not before the answer. Well, then how can it be a Section 6 remand? Sentence 6 has two uh, categories of uh, uh, remands. Uh, one is the one before he files an answer. I see. And it may at any time order, addition, order additional evidence to be taken before the Secretary. Did the Court order the additional evidence? The, the Court did not order, but that was the substance of what occurred. Indeed, that's... Well, but, well, it's the substance of... There are two parts to Sentence 6. The first part is the Court may, on motion of the Secretary made for good cause shown, before he files his answer, send it back. Now, the Secretary initiated it here, but not before he filed his answer, Right. That is correct. Now, the second part is, it may at any time order additional evidence to be taken. Did it order additional evidence to be taken? Did the court order additional evidence? Right. Not in, the, not in the words of its remand order, no. Well, then neither the first part nor the second part of sentence six seems to apply. I, I respectfully disagree with that, Justice Scalia. And the reason is, is that in substance, what had occurred is that the secretary learned of new evidence. And uh, se- sentence six provides that either party uh, can ask for a remand. For answer. answer, if you if you intend to be under Section 6. No. I, a sentence, I, sentence 6. Under Sentence 6, either party can ask for the second type of remand, and then the court may may order such a remand if there is good cause okay. and if there is new evidence. And the fact is, is that is not uh, necessarily perfectly recited in every remand order. And that is another reason why that the Secretary's position is unworkable. If indeed we're going to have each of petitions... Uh, uh, the timeliness of each of petitions, depending on uh, whether it's a four-sentence or six-sentence remand, it'll be extremely difficult to determine in each case without getting into the substance of each case. You, you think the Secretary would have been um, um, in contempt of court if he had not taken additional evidence in this case, if he had just reconsidered the case on the basis of the same evidence? Uh, Did he take additional evidence? Yes. And that was the basis for the award. But you think he had to, that he could not just have used the evidence already there and altered his decision because impliedly the court ordered additional evidence yes. to be taken? I think that, I think whether he would have been in contempt of court, I think it, if I were representing the claimant, I would have come back to the court and explained what had transpired. It would have been a breach of, of what he said he was going to do in this case. It's well, very clear if you, the briefs that are in the record in this case, both in the District Court and the Ninth Circuit, which are um, uh, cited in my brief, uh, make clear that the purpose of this was to look at some additional evidence, a small bit of additional evidence that, that had um, arisen. In fact, cases are not remanded, in my experience, simply to take another shot at it. That's not the purpose of it. It is to take another look at evidence uh, under that, that second clause of Sentence 6. And uh, that is one reason under the practical considerations that we want the court to consider uh, why uh, this doesn't necessarily apply to the EJA, because uh, as the Secretary concedes in his brief, these remand orders are often very short and uh, boilerplate in nature, and you would have to look at the substance of what occurred to determine when it was timely. Rather, under our view, 
you need a judgment of the district court, regardless of whether it's a fourth or sixth sentence case. You need a judgment of the district court to trigger this limitations period. Our position, therefore, fixes one time deadline for the filing of all Egypt petitions, but more importantly, it comports with the statute that Congress has written. Thank you, Mr. Wolfman. Mr. Sloan, we'll hear now from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the Equal Access to Justice Act imposes a time limitation on applications for attorney's fees. The Act requires that an application for attorney's fees be filed within 30 days of final judgment in the action. In our view, the Secretary's post-remand decision is the final judgment in the action when it is final and not appealable and has therefore effectively terminated the action on the merits. We believe that this interpretation is the correct reading of the Equal Access to Justice Act and the Social Security Act, and that it is strongly supported by this Court's decisions in Hudson and in Finkelstein. We also believe that it provides a fair and practicable approach for all concerned. Petitioner's interpretation is that courts must enter orders solely to start the attorney's fees clock running, and that if they do not do so, there is simply no attorney's fees time limitation at all. We believe that Petitioner's interpretation is contrary to the governing statutes and that it mandates a cumbersome procedure which is neither compelled nor warranted by the governing statutes. This Court's decisions in Hudson and in Finkelstein greatly clarify the issue in this case. In Hudson, the Court held that post-remand administrative proceedings are part of the civil action for which attorney's fees can be recovered. By an analogous principle, the event that conclusively resolves those proceedings should be considered the final judgment in the action. Indeed, in Hudson, it was argued to the Court that civil action should be interpreted solely with respect to events that happen in a courtroom, and the Court rejected that position. By a similar principle, the Court should also reject Petitioner's argument that the final judgment in the action is only something that can occur in the Court. Is this a relatively new position of the Secretary? It is a relatively new position, Your Honor. Like real new? Well, yes. And this has been a difficult issue for the Secretary and for the government generally. There's no question about that. I cannot stand here and say that our position on this issue has been clear and consistent because it has not. But we think that the answer to the question is clear now, particularly in light of the Court's decisions in Hudson and in Finkelstein, which have greatly clarified the landscape. Is the Secretary's present position based at least in part on those two decisions? It is based on those two decisions in that we believe that they greatly clarify the issue and support it. We think that this is a clear answer from the reading of the statutes in any event. You would be arguing for this if Hudson had come out the other way? It would be a more difficult argument, Your Honor. But we would because, as Petitioner pointed out, the remand order itself does not entitle somebody to prevailing party status. What would entitle them to prevailing party status is if they succeed in the post-remand administrative proceedings. And so even if those post-remand administrative proceedings are not part of the civil action for purposes of recovering attorney's fees, 
it has a critical significance in the Act because the conclusion of those post-remand administrative proceedings define the time when somebody is the prevailing party. Mr. Sloan, you, you, you talk about the administrative difficulty of, of accepting the petitioner's position, but what about the administrative difficulty of accepting yours? It may be easy enough with respect to the Social Security Administration, but I can think of a lot of other agencies that uh, the thing is remanded and, and the thing sort of goes on forever. I mean, a major proceeding, uh, atomic licensing or, or an FCC proceeding, I, I'm not sure that in, in major administrative cases of that sort, it's as easy to, to identify the, the moment of, of judgment uh, as it is in Social Security. How do you expect us to, uh, I mean, are we buying into a whole uh, grab bag of future uh, petitions to decide when a judgment occurs in administrative actions. I would make two points in response to that, Your Honor. First of all, um, the, the question is whether even in these mammoth proceedings that have dragged on, what is the point at which they have become final and no longer reviewable? Uh, and there is a definite point to that, and it's one the courts have to resolve in any case in determining whether further review in the court would be timely, uh, and the, the, the statutes are, are structured in such a way that a party uh, knows his rights and knows when review is still available and when review has run out. And when review has run out, the proceedings have been terminated on the merits. The, the second point, though, is that this brings up a, a fundamental point about the Equal Access to Justice Act and a fundamental problem in petitioner's position. And that is that the Equal Access to Justice Act takes other statutes uh, and statutory schemes as it finds them. It does not impose additional requirements of its own force on those statutory schemes. And to the extent that there are difficulties in complicated other statutes and administrative proceedings, the difficulty is in those proceedings. Uh, but that doesn't mean that the attorney's fee statute itself has some uh, kind of power or authority to impose uh, additional requirements on the, on the administration of those statutory schemes solely for the purpose of facilitating attorney's fees applications, which is the burden of petitioner's position, that somehow the attorney's fees statute, which uh, in its structure is designed to allow for the recovery of attorney's fees for actions in other proceedings, somehow has the, the power to uh, engraft additional requirements onto the administration of those schemes. Petitioner's uh, scheme, uh, um, he's going to have to decide when there's a final judgment in the agency as well. I mean, you're going to have to know when to go back to the district court. So that may be a problem under anybody's resolution. Well, I, I would think so, Your Honor. It, it's possible the petitioner would say, well, it doesn't matter because uh, he, can, he can go back at any time in terms of timeliness. But I guess in terms of the prevailing party issue, um, that would certainly suggest if he wants to establish that he's the prevailing party. Well, he can go back too late, but he can't go back too early. I mean, he, he, he's going to have to figure out at least when the judgment occurs that enables him to go back. He may not have but, to do it right away, but he's going to have to figure out when the judgment occurs before the agency. That, that enables him to go back as a prevailing party. That's, that's correct. Mr. Sloan, uh, as, as your exchange with Justice Scalia illustrates, at least if it was necessary to get a judgment from the district court. Everyone would then know uh, what triggers the time limit, I suppose. That's, that's correct. That would be the positive side of that interpretation. Now, has the secretary, in fact, been uh, returning to the district court, even in a case like this where 
uh, the applicant has fully prevailed on remand in order to get uh, a judgment? Well, there are... Petitioner's attorney referred to some form and some rather uniform practice of the secretary. Has that been the secretary's practice generally? It, it, it has been the general view that filings are appropriate, not necessarily getting additional orders. And let me distinguish between the two. In the forms the petitioner refers to, refers to making filings in the district uh, court. Uh, even with respect to filings, it is my understanding, I've been informed by uh, the Department of Health and Human Services, that that has been the, the general view of the secretary. In fact, the, the practice That's has... what has been the general view? That there would be filings uh, in, the, in the district court. A filing of what? Of the, uh, of the transcript and the decision on remand. Mm-hmm. Uh, that the and a request for an order? Well, dismissal or something of the sort? Uh, sometimes. That, uh, it appears that the view on that, which uh, has been, uh, first of all, the general view on filings is in forms and so on. There's not a regulation that speaks to it. The view on uh, seeking orders uh, and so on seems to have been less crystallized than the view on uh, seeking filings. The forms that he refers Can't to. Can't you answer the question more definitively, Mr. Well, Sloan? <laughs> uh, well, I'm sorry, Chief Justice. It's just that it's been a complicated uh, Well, but area. the question calls for a fairly simple answer, I think. Okay. If the question is, has it been the general practice uh, that, there, that there be a request for orders, it's my understanding that has not been the uniform practice. Uh, it, Why it has did you ever done. file anything then? Well, because there was a lot of confusion on this issue, uh, frankly, <laughs> Justice White. There, there, uh, there has been, and uh, it is... It, it, it is our belief that the issue has now been greatly clarified. Well, why, is, uh, why, is, uh, why is this such a big issue? Uh, uh, do you agree that without, uh, that, do you agree that, uh, that uh, a judgment of a court is not necessary in order for a successful claimant to file for fees? Uh, a, a final judgment of a court is, is not necessary uh, for a claimant to, to file for fees. But so, the, so, the, so, the, so the claimant could, uh, if you didn't go to court and get an order, the claimant can just wait around and file for fees whenever he wants to. Under his view, we think well, that's I, a flaw it, in, his, well, in his view. But if I could just elaborate on my earlier answer. Uh, at, well, let's in, assume we don't buy your notion that the uh, secretary's uh, uh, final order is a final judgment. Then do you agree that the, uh, that the uh, claimant could just wait forever to file for fees without getting a final judgment? No, we would think that in, in that circumstance uh, it, it would be appropriate uh, to get some Appropriate, but I suppose he, suppose he doesn't get a judgment, and neither do you, uh, but he files for fees. Would that be proper? Well, the logic of petitioner's position is that it would be proper under, under his view. But let me just distinguish this situation from the situations the petitioner is trying to align himself with. Um, the, the typical circumstance in which someone can file for attorney's fees before uh, a final judgment would be, for example, if it is in the district court uh, and it's going to go up on appeal and somebody files for uh, attorney's fees so that in the interest of judicial economy, the fees and the merits can, can go up at once. Uh, and the government has not opposed that practice, and we think it's a- allowed under the statute. But the critical difference in that kind of situation is there will ultimately be a final judgment in the action. It won't be permanently open-ended in the way that the petitioner is arguing for here. I, I, kinda, I sort of wonder why the case is even here. It seems to me that, uh, that, that uh, 
if you want to avoid uh, the bother of going up to the district court, well, you just don't need to go. And uh, the claimant uh, can go and, uh, and file for fees whenever he wants to. Yeah, and uh, normally you would think that they would be rather prompt in trying to get their money. But the, the problem with why, that, why is it such a big bother for you, for the secretary? Because the 30-day time limitation is a central part of the Equal Access to Justice Act. When Congress passed the Equal Access to Justice Act, it did not, uh, in the act, make the choice that you're suggesting that it would rely on attorneys' incentives and they're going to be hungry for cash and so they'll go to court. Congress made a different choice. It, it specifically imposed a 30-day time limitation. Well, you can, if, if that really worries you, you can go and start to clock running just by filing your piece of paper and asking for an order? Well, first of all, the structure of the Act puts the burden on the, on the, the uh, applicant for fees to go to court. And that gets to the other half of, of petitioner's argument that if they want an attorney fee, uh, if the government wants an attorney fee time limitation, the government can simply go to court and seek some kind of order. And so, therefore, if the government wants there to be any time limitation, the government has to uh, go through this additional procedural requirement that isn't contemplated by the Social Security Act, and that is, uh, in many cases, would be a useless uh, filing because there are many cases in which attorney's fees are, are not sought. There are many cases in which they're not contested. And it would require <coughs> the district court to enter orders in, uh, in thousands of cases. What, what would require, Mr. Sloan? What, what, what is it that requires the district court to enter an order? I mean, you can ask them to enter right. an order. What, what provision of law requires a district court to enter an order? No provision of law, Your Honor. What Justice White was referring to is that in order to get the attorney's fees clock running... You, you have to persuade some district court who, to, to enter issue an order. order. That's Suppose right. I'm a district judge and I say, I don't want to be bothered with these things. I had this case and I got rid of it. That's, I entered judgment and the case is gone. Stop bothering me. I don't want to enter an order. That, is, there, is there any provision of law that requires a district judge to enter an order? No. There's not. And the result would be that the alternative that Justice White was suggesting uh, would not, in fact, start the attorney's fees clock. So even in that instance, there would be no attorney's but fees Mr. time limitation. Is it correct there's no provision of law that requires an order? If the form that's in page 17 of the joint appendix is followed, where they re refer to the fact that the, there's issued a favorable decision and the it, U.S. attorneys, if appropriate, have the action discontinued or dismissed, if the U.S. attorney then filed a motion to discontinue or dismiss the action, there would be a provision of law that would require the judge to rule on that motion, wouldn't there? You can't just let motions sit forever. Would it not be the duty of the district court to act on a motion if the U.S. attorney filed one saying, uh, reciting what had happened and said, uh, it is therefore prayed that the action be dismissed or discontinued? One would ordinarily expect the district court to act on that motion. He'd have a legal duty to do so, would he not? Uh, I, I would think that he would, Your Honor. Wouldn't he deny the motion? Simply say, I deny the motion to dismiss because I've already dismissed. This was a Section 4 remand, not a Section 6 remand. The case has been dismissed. I deny the motion. Yes, he, he could deny the motion. He would have to act on the motion, but he would. And indeed, in, in this case, uh, there's a, a, is, it provides a good example of uh, a district court that would likely react that way, and it illustrates why, contrary to petitioner's submission, this is not a sentence six remand. The district court's order said it is remanded for all further proceedings, period. There's absolutely no indication in that remand order that it was contemplated uh, that it would come back to, to court, and it would seem likely that a district court would be surprised if uh, uh, a year later or a few months later somebody came back and said, okay, now dismiss this action, when the district court had specifically said it is remanded for all further proceedings. Oh, but that can't be right, Mr. Sloan, supposing they had the further proceedings and the petitioner lost. 
he didn't get his money. You don't think the judge would expect him to come back and renew his appeal? Well, it, uh, no. He doesn't know at that point the secretary is going to give the, give the award, does he? Does the judge? Uh, no, the judge does not. But he can't, by those all further proceedings, mean he's precluding any further review by him or no, her. No, it doesn't mean that he's precluding, but it does mean that, uh, that it, a, a party that is not satisfied with the result would have to come back. And in Finkelstein, the court said that every final decision of the secretary is reviewable in a separate piece of litigation. Um, and uh, the, what I'm saying is that the district court would be surprised if the claimant or if the secretary came back when neither was dissatisfied with the outcome of the administrative uh, proceeding. The secretary that be a new action when he came back or the same action? Do the district courts have to keep their dockets open interminably until somebody finally walks back and says, by the way, this case that you remanded five years ago, close the docket on it. They have to keep it open well, as to forever what, until, until it's closed. I, I would have assumed it's a new lawsuit when, when the secretary doesn't act properly on remand. And you open a new docket number. Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a new piece of litigation. Whether it has to be a separate lawsuit is something that uh, could perhaps be addressed by local district court practice. We don't take the position that that is a substantive uh, difference, well, the but it would form that you use seems to contemplate using the same number. They've got the number of the case on it. Say, please take this to court. Isn't it routinely done? I mean, in this case, this, the U.S. attorney just failed to act on this. Isn't it normally normal that he would act on this, norm, this uh, form request? Well, this is, I, I was trying to elaborate on the problems with saying whether it, it normally or not. And, I think uh, it would be most unlikely for him to give it a new number in the district court. When that's, the case that, that, that's correct, Your Honor. But as to whether it was unusual that the U.S. attorney did not go back, that's the point I, I was trying to emphasize um, before at the risk of sounding non-responsive, which was that uh, the practice varied in local U.S. attorney's offices. Uh, it varied according to a number of variables, as I understand it. What people thought that the local district court would expect, um, the, the particular kind of order, all kinds of, uh, of variables. There was a general view on the part of the department that it was appropriate to go back and make the filings, but the practice... What about under other statutes, varied. Mr. Sloan? I mean, this applies to all statutes. Is there a general practice under, under all other statutes under which agencies are sued? To go back to the district court? Right. Uh, I, I'm not aware of such a, a practice, not to my knowledge, Your Honor. To your knowledge, the practice is not to go back? That's right. Uh, to my knowledge, the, the practice is not. And in, in part, uh, part of the, uh, the practice here has grown up in the particular context of the Social Security Act uh, administration, which there is a very high percentage of remands of district court actions and uh, uh, and also in which there is also this, not also true the very high percentage of EJA applications are in Social Security Act cases. That's correct. That's uh, correct. You rely on Sullivan versus uh, Hudson, and there we said the procedure set forth in 42 U.S.C. 405G contemplates additional action both by the secretary and the district court before civil action is concluded following a remand. Is that? Uh, observation just inapplicable to this case, or is it wrong? Well, we believe that it, it, it is inapplicable to this case because, as the court clarified in Finkelstein, uh, that that would apply in a sentence six remand, and we believe this was not a sentence six remand. And uh, the court had addressed the, uh, the 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 comments in Hudson in its decision in Finkelstein, so that that, that applies to sentence six remands rather than to all other remands. Is this under 405G at all? Yes, it is. 
the, the action was filed pursuant to 405G. There's a provision. 405G applies to Title II of the Social Security Act. This was under Title 16, and there's a provision in Title 16 that incorporates 405G by reference. Well, and under your view, what statutory authority did the Court act under when it remanded the case? Uh, it acted under an implied authority as part of 405G. This was not a, a sentence for remand either, but it was... Uh, so it's a little odd to say there's a 405G action. You say what's implied. I, I suppose it's just the general supervisory powers of the courts or the general authority of the court? What, one could view it that way or also as, as an incident to the grant of authority in 405G itself. So then our observation in Sullivan versus Hudson was at the least incomplete... Well, it, it, as, as the court clarified in Finkelstein, it, it uh, should be read as being limited to sentence six remands. So the case you rely on is incomplete? Uh, well, it, it, we're relying on Hudson and Finkelstein taken together, Your Honor. At least you want us to complete it. <laughs> and I take it you do uh, take the position that if it is a sentence six remand, it has to go back to the district court and there would have to be a final judgment from that court. We do take that position, Your Honor. And so we're only talking here about what? Sentence four remands and this other vague implied remand that you say exists under the statute? That's correct, Your Honor. And uh, the, the distinction between sentence six remands and, and other remands is, is important uh, because it, it illustrates the, the difference between the, the kind of remand that is contemplated under sentence six in which the court retains jurisdiction uh, explicitly, and it remands only for a very limited purpose, the taking of additional evidence, and then it is specifically envisioned in sentence six that it will come back to the court uh, as opposed to the situation in other remands. Now, because of the special category of sentence six uh, remands and its implications both for the administrative uh, action and for the district court, we suggested that it's, it, it's appropriate to have a clear statement rule with respect to sentence six remands. And if the court wants to take the action of retaining jurisdiction and, and requiring uh, additional filings, and uh, uh, additional proceedings in the district court, the district court should, should clearly and unequivocally say so because of the special nature uh, of these sentence six remands. There are other uh, uh, statutes that have the equivalent of section six remands in them that author specifically authorize the court to remand to the agency for the taking of further evidence, aren't there? Yes, there are. And do you think an agency has authority to do that even apart from an explicit uh, provision in the statute? Uh, of a case to say, you know, there's, uh, seems to us the record's incomplete. Oh, to go to the district court in, or the court of appeals and ask for a remand? No, 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 no. The, the district court. It's a case in the district court. You think that, uh, well, or the court of appeals. Could the court of appeals ever send it back? Uh, it it could send it back for the taking of additional evidence. They do that sometimes, even without explicit authority, don't they? Yes, for a clarification of the administrative record. And you would treat that the same way you'd treat a sentence six under the Social Security Act? If, if it was pursuant to a provision that explicitly required coming back to the, uh, to the court for further proceedings, yes, we would. A provision Suppose of the statute unclear. or of the court's order? Or of the court's order, exactly, Your Honor. Suppose it were unclear. Well, we would urge in those other contexts as well that there should be a, a, a plain statement rule in terms of remands. If the court wants to uh, take the exceptional step or the... the, the uh, uh, burdensome in some respect step, I was hesitating to say that, but the burdensome step of retaining jurisdiction and absolutely requiring further proceedings, the court should clearly say so, and that if the court does not clearly say so, uh, the uh, inference should be, should be the other way. Now, P Petitioner has emphasized as a, as a great practical problem 
with our approach the fact that it requires distinguishing between sentence six remands and other remands. But the key point about that is that uh, we're not creating that distinction. The Social Security Act creates that distinction. And this court uh, elaborated on that distinction in, in Finkelstein. And again, this relates to that fundamental principle of the attorney's fee statute, that it takes the other statutory and regulatory schemes as it finds them. Uh, it does not uh, impose upon them it does, or change them in any way to the extent that the distinction between sixth sentence remands and other remands is difficult. It's a, difficult, it's a difficulty, number one, that is created by the statute itself, and number two, that we think could be uh, plainly resolved by this kind of plain statement rule. Now, there is a, an apparent anomaly, even in a sixth sentence case, about uh, the fact that uh, a fully favorable decision to the claimant still has to come back to the court for additional proceedings. And we would suggest that uh, that anomaly uh, could be resolved by a relatively simple practice that would allow six-sentence remands and other remands to be treated essentially the same in this context. And what that would be is that at the time that a six-sentence remand was going to be ordered by the court, uh, the government could simply, in each case, ask that there be a provision in the court's remand order that jurisdiction would terminate uh, 65 days or whatever the period of review was after the administrative decision unless any party brought it back to the court. And the, the result of that would be that you would have a final judgment at exactly the same time that you have in other remands, but it would be faithful to the statutory scheme that the district court is setting the terms of its jurisdiction under a sixth-sentence remand. Mr. Sloan, can I ask you this question about the sequence in this case? It, as I remember the chronology, it was, according to the, their, their brief, on May 7th, the uh, uh, 85, the appeals council announced that they decided the man was disabled. Correct. And subsequently, he got a check for his back. Uh, work. Is it occasionally t- uh, the case that there will be a finding of disability, but remaining some possible dispute over the amount, specific amount doing? Yes, there is, but we would... Uh not think that that keeps open the action on the merits. That's an entirely separate matter, the amount of, of benefits, and it's treated as such in the Secretary's regulations. And if one wanted to challenge the benefits determination, that would require new administrative appeals. It would require a new uh, request for judicial action. In fact, benefits determinations are, are typically fairly uh, routine and do not uh, engender that type of complicated administrative appeals and judicial appeals. So the clock would start to run from the time that the Appeals Council announced that they agree the man is disabled? Well, in, in our view, Your Honor, um, that, that was the view that the Court of Appeals took. Well, um, I don't mean the clock. The calculation of the time when the clock would start to run would, would have, have that as its initial reference point. Right, and then what, what we would say the appropriate position would be is that after the Appeals Council's decision, uh, then there's 65 days for review, five days presumed for mailing of the notice, and 60 days. And at that point, if there's no further review, the Appeals Council's decision has become final and not appealable, and the 30 days would begin at that time. Does the Secretary contemplate issuing regulations for the benefit of the lawyer who has this kind of case only once in a while and would know when it would, that time period would run? Uh, well, that, it would certainly be appropriate to, to have regulations on that. The general regulation on review of Appeals Council decisions, is, it's clear under the existing that. regulations. But it, were, were you referring specifically to a regulation directed to EJA? It, uh, it, it occurs to me that there probably are some neighborhood lawyers who get this kind of case and are not specialists in the field and might not realize that the final judgment is, is something that occurs 65 days after the end of the administrative proceeding. 
Well, it, it would certainly be appropriate um, to, to have uh, uh, the administrative uh, documents be as, as clear as possible on that so that everybody knows what the applicable rule is. Um, as we said, we think it's clear under the existing regulations that there is the 65-day period for review right. of the Appeals Council uh, decision. It might not be perfectly clear to the average lawyer that that's the, that's the final judgment date, 65 days in the future after that. That's that, and to the extent that it's not, administrative clarification would be appropriate. Mr. Sloan, lest uh, <clears throat> silence be deemed consent, don't, don't associate me with your suggestion that in a sec- sentence six case, the secretary can avoid going back by simply uh, saying something to the district court. As I, as I read that, uh, that sentence six, he has to go back well, with, it, with the new judgment. Honor, I, I, I was not saying at all that the mere fact that the secretary says something means he won't come back. What I was saying is that the secretary can ask the district court to include in its uh, remand order a provision which says that the district court's, uh, my jurisdiction, will terminate 65 days after the, after the Appeals Council issues its decision unless uh, somebody... In the face of the statute, which says that he has to come back with the, with the new order. Well, that's another case, but... <laughs> okay. <laughs> Are you, uh, is the government uh, defending uh, the Ninth Circuit decision? Yes, we're defending the Ninth... And the reasoning? We're, we're defending the judgment of the Ninth Circuit. We're defending their decision with uh, a modification because, in their view, because it was fully favorable to the claimant, it became a final judgment on the day that it was issued. And it was not appealable then. That's right. And we would have a 65-day for review as the calculation. Thank you, Mr. Sloan. Mr. Wolfman, do you have rebuttal? You have one minute remaining. Very briefly, Your Honor. Uh, first, to respond to Justice Stevens, uh, Approximately 93% of all Egypt petitions were in the Social Security context in the last fiscal year. And uh, it's simply not the case that the Secretary's position uh, differed in different judicial districts. In my experience, and as evidenced by the forms presented to the Court, they promised every claimant and continue to promise every claimant to go back to the District Court. Now, what is being proposed? Yes, it may be true that the U.S. Attorney's position has been different in different sections. Sometimes they may just file a form away, and sometimes they may go into court with it. That is not my experience. In the, what is being suggested here is this uh, microscopic look at the difference between a sentence four and sentence six remand, which serves no purposes of the EJA. Not to mention the next time we come back to this court with a, a hybrid sentence four, sentence six case, or looking at the particular. Uh, problems uh, with other agencies or situations where there was a district court order. Thank you, Mr. Wolfman. The case is submitted.